We had a great uh, uh, Ash Wednesday service uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Pastor Jonathan really encouraged us to, to look at our motives and examine our ways. And I really took that seriously. I thought, you know, this year for Lent, I'm not just going to give up dessert or something like that. I'm going to go really, really deep and and I'm going to work on my anger issues, and I'm going to work on being a calm and, and relaxed person. And then uh, my grandkids came for the week. <laughs> I was out the, out the window. So uh, I got a new Lenten observance I'm going to follow. Maybe you want to do the same thing. I'm not going to watch the stock market right now. That's going to be my Lenten observance, so you can take that for what it's worth. Well, today we finish up our our journey through the Old Testament, and and next week we're going to start looking through the New Testament. And the last few weeks, we we learned that the Jewish people were carried away into exile by the Babylonian Empire. But not long after, Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus was much more lenient and had a policy of uh, allowing captives to return uh, to their homeland. And so uh, about 100 years later, there was a a second wave of refugees who returned home led by a priest named Ezra. And he helps them to refocus on building the temple. Uh, Last week, we learned about a, a young Jewish girl named Esther who is living in Susa, the capital of Persia. And through the providence of God, she rose to become a queen in the Persian court of Xerxes and was able to save her race from uh, annihilation. Uh, Today we look at a man named Nehemiah. Uh, He lives at the same time of Ezra, and he also is living in Susa and serving as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I, the sixth king of the Persian Empire. Now, a a cupbearer to the king was was highly valued, highly trusted, highly ranked, and a highly paid member of the royal court. You see, he was sort of the court bartender. <laughs> and it was his job to make sure that, that all the drinks were, were safe to drink. You know, so if he's over there tasting the wine and, and the king sees him folly, you know, suddenly fall over dead, he knows, okay, we're not going to drink from that bottle today. Not, not safe. Uh, but God has a much higher purpose for Nehemiah than serving up drinks in the palace. God plans to use him to bring moral and spiritual renewal to his nation that is badly in need of it. So let's look at our story and maybe we can find some principles for our own lives, our own time. And we begin in chapter 1. Now a fellow Jew named Hananiah has just returned from Judah. And the first thing that Nehemiah asks him is, is how the people back home are doing. He's not asking about the stock market. He's not asking about the condition of the palaces or the the temple or the walls or even about his family's farm. His question, his first concern was for the people. He wanted to know how the remnant uh, were doing. And the news is not good. He reports to uh, to Nehemiah, those who survived uh, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. 
So if you want proof that people matter to Nehemiah, just look at what he does when he hears the news. It says, I sat down and I wept. That's remarkable. Those people are a thousand miles away. Most of them he's never met in his life and still his heart is breaking for them. And it kind of convicts me, you know. I want that kind of heart. I want that clear priority that, that people are always first. Sometimes I get that out of order. I start thinking that, that other things, that doing things are more important. But people are always first. And verse 4 tells us what he did next. He says, for some days I, I mourned and fasted and, and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now, if that would have been me, I would have organized a task force and, and I would have executed the plan. I would have started a, a GoFundMe uh, project and I would have sent cards of encouragement to, to those fee- people who were in despair and, and, and write letters to the paper about the need for a UN delegation to, to go back and visit the city of Jerusalem, but not Nehemiah. The first thing he does is is to pray. People are our first priority, folks, but prayer is always our first action. Now, maybe Nehemiah had no other choice. Uh, Maybe he had no deep pockets or big endowment or corporate sponsors. Uh, Maybe he had no organization or, or blueprints. So perhaps Nehemiah had no other choice than prayer, but, but he knew this was a God-sized problem that needed a God-sized solution. And those things only come through one way, and that's through prayer. And verse 5 says, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Prayer and fasting, morning and night. I mean, that's passionate prayer. And what if all of us did the same? What if we spent this season of, of Lent and, and prayer and fasting, praying for ourselves, praying for our church, praying for our community, praying for our world? How might things be different? Well, chapter 2 takes place about 100 days after chapter 1. And so for 100 days, Nehemiah has, has been praying and he's been struggling over what to do, but, but nothing has changed and, and nothing is happening. And so the king notices that something is wrong, that Nehemiah is upset. And so he says, Nehemiah, are you depressed? And he's a little afraid of letting his feelings be known to the king, but he finally comes to him and says, yes, he says, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lives in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So the king says, what what do you want? What do you need? So this question, it kind of cuts to the chase. He, Nehemiah, he's wept and he's fasted, he's prayed. He's done all the, the spiritual stuff that you're supposed to do. But, but now it's kind of the moment of truth. Now it was the moment for him to act. Now is where the, the rubber hits the road. And so he says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. It's a huge request. It's a big risk for Nehemiah. 
But he asks, and the king grants him his request. And then he asks for supplies that he will need to rebuild from the king's treasury and, and from the king's forest for wood. And the king grants all of that as well. And so Nehemiah knows that his prayers have been answered, that, that choosing to pray first uh, has really paid off, that, that God is behind all of this, and he gives God's credit. And so he begins his long journey back to Jerusalem. And he leaves behind a comfortable job, a comfortable life, and a comfortable home. And when he arrives, he discovers that things are a mess. And he plans a secret nighttime reconnaissance of the walls, and he discovers the, the huge amount of work that lays in, lies in front of him. And it's, it's just huge. But rather than be discouraged at what he sees, uh, he sees uh, signs of hope. Instead of seeing gaping holes, he saw beautiful gates that would once more stand and tall and proud and beautiful. And he sees Jerusalem in all of its former glory. Nehemiah was able to see what nobody else was, was able to see, the potential, the, the beauty and the splendor. And he, he felt God's presence and he knew that, that somehow out of this mess that, that God was going to work things out for good. You see, Nehemiah had captured God's vision. He saw what God saw, and he knew what needed to be, to be done. And so they begin the work. And it's all volunteers. Every single person's a volunteer. I, I think they must have had an armed group in their church back then because these guys are just going crazy, and they're doing the work. And everybody's pitching in. Everybody's helping. Everybody's getting their hands dirty. Everybody's doing their part to, to rebuild the walls and the gates. And it's interesting that, that Nehemiah lists in the Bible every single person who helped with this building project. All of them are listed. Isn't that strange? Why do we need to read that today, thousands of years later? I think it's because every person was important. And Nehemiah wanted to emphasize that. But not everything goes smoothly. And I think whenever you attempt something big for God, you're going to run into that opposition. In this case, two people named Sanballat and Tobiah. In chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the walls. I mean, do you hear the frustration? They're hitting bottom. The project was at its low point, and, and so were the people's spirits. Too much opposition, too much ridicule, too much rubble, too much fear, and not enough workers. So how does Nehemiah handle this? Well, he prays, and he builds his plan. All the workers are, are to be armed with a sword in one hand and with a shovel in the other. And he puts together a, a warning system in case they are attacked. And then he gives a, a brave heart kind of speech in verse 14. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your families. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your, for your wives. And fight for your homes. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. And so they would not give up on their God-given vision to rebuild 
they would not surrender, and it was a marvelous testimony to the depth and to the measure of their commitment. Nehemiah will not back down, and his risk changes the history of the Jewish people. He rebuilds the walls at a great cost to himself personally, but they do it in 52 days, and it's a miracle, and everybody knows that God has been behind it. But Nehemiah is not done. He, he wants to do more than just to rebuild walls. He wants to rebuild the moral and, and spiritual foundation of the nation as well. And, and he begins with some, with some economic justice. In, in chapter 5, a group of impoverished people come to Nehemiah and they say, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax uh, on our fields and vineyards. Ever feel like you're taxed too much? Well, you're not the first. <laughs> and some of our daughters have been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards now belong to others. And Nehemiah, he gets ticked off. It's a righteous indignation. In verse 6, he says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, he says, I was very angry, and I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Stop charging interest. Give back to them their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and houses, and also the, charge, the interest you are charging them. Verse 12 tells us they had a change of, of attitude, a change of mind. He said, they say, we'll give it back and we'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. You see, God's people need to care about others. We need to care about justice. Do you know the number of people who are dest destitute in our planet right now is about 100 million people? That the average number of people who die from starvation every day is about 10,000? How in the world do we as a people of God, how do we live with those statistics? And surely those of us who live in affluent circumstances, and I would say that the affluent is everybody here in this, in this room today, we have to live, we have to act differently. Not because we think it's going to solve all the macroeconomic issues and problems of our world, but because God calls us to a life of simplicity. God calls us to a life of, of justice. God calls us to contentment. God calls us to a life of generosity. Who can make a difference. My family gave me a, a book for Christmas on the history of the Welsh revivals. And the first one was a Methodist revival under John Wesley that started in England and then spread to Wales. And, and here's the observations that the author makes. He says this, Revivals sprang up which carried to the hearts of the people a, a fresh moral zeal, a, a new philanthropy that reformed our prisons, abolished the slave trade, and gave the first impulse to public education. Now, sometimes at our revival meetings, men and women fell down in convulsions. They had fits of laughter or crying. And observers thought the Methodists um, were foolish and absurd. But it was the Methodist revival that reformed the nation and prevented England from having the same bloody revolution that the French had just had. 
You see, one of the signs of a genuine Holy Spirit-led revival is that it results in a better and more just world. So we prioritize people, we, we make prayer our first action, we expect opposition, we care about justice. Next, we obey God's word. Chapter 8 begins this way. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one. I, I love that. I mean, there is power in that kind of, of unity. It had been 140 years since the nation had come together as one. And here's what they do. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So they bring out the Torah, the first five books of, of the Bible. And it says that when Ezra opened the Torah, that everybody spontaneously stood up in reverence. And, and Ezra, he gets inspired and he breaks out in, in praise to the Lord. And the crowd is shouting amen and they, they fall on the ground and, and they worship the Lord and, and revival begins to break out among the people of God. And so all morning long from daybreak to, to noon, Ezra reads from the, God's word. Now the younger ones who grew up in Babylon, they no longer understand Hebrew and so they have, they have Arabic translators who help them to understand and by the end of the morning, the people of God are wrecked. They are just wrecked. They are in tears. Because hearing God's word, they realize how far short they have fallen of God's vision for the people of God. It's so bad that Ezra finally has to intervene. Verse 10 says this, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your Strength. Verse 11 says, Then all the people went away to eat and to drink. They went to have lunch. <laughs> Might have been a potluck if they were Methodist. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but here's the point. They heard the word. They understood the word. And they obeyed the word. You see, at the heart of every revival movement is obedience to the word of God. And so James writes in his letter, chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And so what James is, is saying to us that if our, our faith is real, if our faith is genuine, it has to make a difference in how we live our lives. James says it isn't enough to say you believe in Christ. That belief has to translate into a changed life. Does that make sense? He's not saying that we achieve our salvation through, through good works, through being good people, but if we have a genuine faith, then, then good works will follow as evidence that our faith is real and genuine. He gives an example in chapter 2. He says, someone comes to you needing help, and all you do is say, well, that's too bad. I'm, I'm so sorry. God bless you, and I'll pray for you. And do nothing, James says. That is a meaningless gesture. And if we call ourselves followers of Christ, it should follow that we care enough about our broken world to do something. In 1904, the Welsh had a another revival. It started with a 25-year-old Welsh coal miner named Evan uh, Roberts. He had no education, no speaking skills. 
Uh, but one day, the Holy Spirit gave Evan this vision that 100,000 people would give their lives to Christ. Now, that sounds crazy. 100,000? Come on, what are you thinking? I'd be happy with one or two sometimes, you know? But Roberts went ahead and he, he sought an opportunity to preach in his local Methodist church. And his pastor just wasn't going to let him do that. And finally he convinced him to allow him to preach at the Wednesday night prayer service. And, and about 17 people showed up. But the Holy Spirit used that to ignite a revival. And they, they held a service the next night and, and, and the next night. And it just it didn't stop. And within a month, 37,000 had been Converted to Christ. And within five months, 100,000 Welsh men and women had been converted. The vision had come true. It's remarkable. The, the Methodist recorder newspaper reported this. Wales is in the throes and ecstasies of the most remarkable revival it has ever known. And it is nothing less than a moral revolution. It was changing lives. And the revival spread to England where two million were converted. And then it spread to the continent. In Norway, churches were so packed that they had to ordain lay people to help serve communion. Then it spread to Africa and, and India and China and Korea and then to America. In Paducah, uh, Kentucky, the Baptist church added a thousand new members to its roles in one year. In Burlington, Iowa, every store and factory simply closed because people were attending the prayer meetings. The same thing happened in Denver and Portland and Los Angeles. Over 200,000 people gathered together for an open-air prayer meeting in Los Angeles. And church historians estimate that 20 million people came to faith in Christ during that movement. And it all began with one Welsh coal miner who was obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This planet needs another revival. And I think that as we begin to align our wills with God's word, it will happen. As we care about each other, as we commit to a life of prayer, as we care about justice, as we obey God's word, and as we engage in passionate worship. Let's make a commitment to begin rebuilding. Rebuilding our lives, rebuilding our church, rebuilding our community, rebuilding our planet. Let's make these things important again in our lives. I'm praying for a Holy Ghost revival. <laughs> How about you? Let's pray. God, every moral and spiritual renewal movement begins when we decide in our own hearts that we're going to follow you no matter where it takes us. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah who left, left behind a comfortable job and a comfortable home to do exactly that. Who at great risk to his own life went home to rebuild the walls and in so doing, Lord, rebuilt a nation. Give us, Lord, that same heart. Give us a passion for your word. Give us a passion for people. Give us a passion for prayer. Give us a passion for justice. Renew us, O oh God, and help us to go out into the world, changed people,
with new hearts that are fully devoted to following you. We pray. Amen.